0: Lord of glory reigning in his majesty, ruling long before the worlds were formed. Yet when darkness claimed his own, he stepped from heaven's throne to wear a cross and wear a crown of thorns. So high the price he paid, the nails, the cross, the grave, such pardon he bestowed. Such grace he showed, no greater sacrifice, he gave his very life, so deep the love, so high the price. Son of God, so willingly he took our place, clothed in robes of frail humanity, fragile flesh and blood, priceless crimson flood, offered up for sin at Calvary, so high the price he paid. The nails, the cross, the grave. Such pardon he bestowed, such grace he showed. No greater sacrifice he gave his very life. So deep the love, so high the price. Buried like a beggar in a borrowed tomb. Everything for nothing, so it seemed. But death could never stand against the nail-scarred hands and power of heaven's resurrected King. So high the price he paid, the nails, the cross, the grave. Such pardon he bestowed, such grace he showed. No greater sacrifice he gave his very life. So deep the love, so high the price. So deep the love. So high the price, so high the price.
1: Thank you, Joshua and Diana. Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to John Chapter Fifteen chapter of the book of John. In your Bibles, I do want to ask you to uh, keep um, Mrs. Poe, Shirley Poe, in your prayer. Your prayers uh, today and tomorrow. She has a quadruple bypass surgery scheduled for tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Um, we are asking that there be no visitors at this point um, for several days afterward just to give her time to recover, get her strength back, and uh, if you're inclined to uh, pay her a visit if you're a close friend of hers and you'd like to pay her a visit. I'd ask that you talk with her daughter, Tracy, at some point, you can connect with her, and uh, she'll be able to tell you when it's a good time. But uh, serious surgery, obviously, and uh, be in prayer for both Shirley and Dick Poe. And uh, I was able to talk to them. They're both in good spirits and trusting the Lord. Um, got a good surgeon, but uh, be in prayer, would you, for Dick and Shirley Poe. We've been studying here in the book of John, and we're in chapter 15. And of course, chapter 15 is really, um, if we were to look at it specifically, it's a chapter about relationships. Jesus has been giving some very important instruction to his disciples, those men who are truly his followers, truly learning uh, what he's teaching them. Not like so many others who he had taught and preached to, who had heard what he had said was impressed with his miracles, what he could do, but frankly, wasn't really willing to follow him. And um, these men were not like them. They struggled. They were human, just like you and I are. Temptations, uh, trials, tests, and they stumbled along the way. But they were true disciples of Jesus Christ, and Jesus had taught them about what kind of a relationship, if they were going to be successful going forward, what kind of relationship with Him they needed to maintain? You remember that was really described in one word. The word is abide, abide, continue. Uh, don't just try me out. That's what He was telling them. Uh, you've been with Me for three years. You know. You you say I. You believe that I'm the Messiah. You you know the truth. You need to continue in that truth. And then and then He talked about. Uh, the disciples' relationships with one another. Uh, so not only did he talk about their relationship with him, that they needed to abide in him, but they also he also taught them about their relationship with one another, that they needed to love one another. And he said it, as I have loved you. with that same sort of intensity, that same sort of fervor, that same uh, uh, measure of, That same measurement wherewith I have loved you, that is the way that you need to love one another selflessly, sacrificially, caring for one another. You need to love one another. And now we come down to the end, uh, really, of the passage in chapter 15, beginning in verse number 18. And he talks to us about our relationship with the world, or he talks to the disciples about their relationship with the world. So he's talked to them about their relationship with him. Abide their relationship with one another, We need to love one another sacrificially, and now our relationship with the world. Um, There's a kind of teaching that's popular today. It's not new. It's been around for some time. It's called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel really is a false gospel that promises that God's people will be rich and God's people will be happy you know, continual bliss, and that God's people will be powerful and God's people uh, will be successful and have health, physical health, as long as they meet certain conditions. They teach that we should embrace prosperity thinking. You know, it's really all in our minds. If we just would wake up with the right attitude, then everything else would fall into place. So it's just a matter of mind over matter. Uh, They they teach the the thinking of the power of not not just prosperity thinking, but positive thinking. And and this kind of a gospel is not even close to what Jesus Christ taught. And you need to know that. And there are teachers out there, probably one of the most famous would be Joel Osteen. And uh, thousands of people come to hear him preach his prosperity gospel. And he is a very, very wealthy man. And I I think I think people follow him so much is because they want to believe what he's saying is true so badly. If I could just get my thoughts in order, if I could just believe enough, if I could just be positive enough, then I too could have perfect health, a perfect life, perfect amount of wealth. Uh, less stress, it'll just be happy, and they want to believe what he's saying is true. Um, and, And he's not the only one. There are many out there. But again, I tell you, based upon the word of God, that these are false teachers. They're not teaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at our text with that in mind. Look at our text, verse number 18. Jesus, they've left the upper room. It's Thursday night. It's going to be crucified the very next day. And look look at what he says to his disciples. This is not a prosperity gospel. Look at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Is that positive? Is that positive? Yes or no? No. It's true. Verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, referring to himself as Lord, they will also persecute you, speaking to his disciples, to us as his servants. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto me for my name's sake, because they know not him. Father that sent me. If I had not come and had spoken unto them, they had not had sin. And the inference there is they would not have known that they were sinners. They would never have known it. They'd have just continued on in life thinking that they were doing what is right. But now they have no cloak or no excuse, is the word for cloak there, for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, and those would have been many miracles, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But but this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when a comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth which proceeded from the Father... He shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. It's not the prosperity gospel this morning, but it is a truth. And Jesus is trying to brace his disciples for what they're going to face in the coming days. All of them, except for John, according to church history, would die a martyr's death. John would be dipped in oil, hot oil, and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. So they would all suffer. And indeed, all of Jesus' disciples, to some degree or another, will suffer. You see, salvation is something that God paid for in full through the death and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation, the, the salvation of God, cost us nothing. But to be a true follower of Jesus Christ will cost us everything. Let's pray together. dearly Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your word. It's been wonderful to study this, even this chapter over the past few weeks, about abiding in our Lord and Savior and how he is sufficient for what we need. It's been wonderful to be reminded of how we're supposed to love one another the way that you have loved us by your Son, and now, Lord, this is a hard truth, but we're thankful for it, or maybe it will be a great help to some of us in this room who have started to believe in the prosperity gospel and that we, life should be easier than it is, and the world, we should be more accepted in the eyes of the world. And Lord, help us to walk in the truth and to understand the truth. So teach us by your Holy Spirit, I pray, uh, strengthen us, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. Okay, you read about it there. By Acts chapter 4, the apostles were arrested, and then many of them were put in jail by the Jewish authorities. They would be in and out of jail for, for preaching the gospel. Um, on several occasions in the Bible, we read, and even uh, extra-biblical accounts talk about how many of the communities Um, Governments were frustrated with Christianity because people, as they were saved and would be converted and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they would stop buying idols. And so idol sales would go down. Uh, Economies would suffer. Um, And in one uh, extra biblical account, uh, two Roman government officials are corresponding and one government official Is um, complaining to the other one that uh, because of Christianity, the temples, the pagan temples, are becoming uh, empty. People are not coming to them anymore because they've believed upon the Christ. Okay? And these were unsaved men, and this was the impact of Christianity. And so there was an animosity, there was a hatred for those who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in in Acts 2 of the church's birth, Acts 4, apostles are arrested and put in jail by the Jewish authority. In in Acts 5, they're in jail again. In Acts chapter 7, a godly, spirit-filled deacon of that church is speaking the truth. He's stoned to death. You remember his name is Stephen. Uh, By Acts chapter 8, Saul, um, later would become the apostle Paul, Saul was persecuting all the churches that he possibly could. Dragging men and women out of their homes, imprisoning them, having some of them even put to death. They were being beaten. The Jews were the first persecutors of Christians. But it wasn't long before the Gentile world began to persecute believers as well. And the Romans persecuted Christians for essentially 300 years, to differing degrees over a period of 300 years. And during that time, Christians were tortured. They were crucified, they were thrown to wild animals, they were impaled, they would impale them on a pole, stick the pole in the ground, they would dip the believers in a type of pitch, and they would light them on fire. Nero did that, an emperor of Rome, to light his garden parties. And for a thousand years after that, the Roman system, and specifically Catholicism, and I know in our day, Uh, Catholicism is considered a part of Christianity, but they are not true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation in their theology is not by faith alone, by grace alone. But for a thousand years after the, the 300 years of persecution by the Roman government, The Roman system or Catholicism persecuted true Christians throughout Europe. They would burn people at the stake. Um, They were against people, the common man, having the word of God in what they called their vulgar tongue. In other words, the Bible, as they believed it to be, could only be spoken in Latin. But the peasants didn't speak Latin. And so the priest would stand or the bishop would stand and he would speak and he would bring a sermon out of the Catholic Bible. But he would speak in Latin and none of the peasants understood a word he was saying. They just would stand there and gather together and go through the motions of of religion. But it it was the Middle Ages and even the Dark Ages and. It was was indeed a dark time spiritually. And so the the Roman, Roman Catholicism, they would burn people at the stake who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and believed that you could receive him by faith and be saved. And they would torture them and they would behead them. And we might say, well, aren't we glad that we didn't live in those days of persecution? According to one source I read, Recently, it said over 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith in the last 2,000 years. I'll say that again. 70 million. Over 50%, according to this source, over 50% of these Christians died after the 20th century. Or during the 20th century and into the 21st century. We're in the 21st century now. So they're saying 35 million people who profess to be Christians have been put to death or died a martyr's death since 1900. So we're talking about the modern era. Uh, Most of those during the 20th century died at the hands of the communists in those countries like Soviet Union and China. Fascist countries. They estimate that upward of 160,000 believers are being killed each year in the 21st century. We're living in the 21st century. North Korea is one of, it is the number one country that enslaves and puts Christians to death. So just in the 21st century, if we were to back it off 160,000, let's say it's 150,000 a year, that would be, Three million believers would have been martyred in the 21st century, just in the last 20 years since 2000 to 2020. There are over 60 countries in the world today where Christians are persecuted by their own governments. We don't live in that country or a country like that today. Islam is the primary source of persecution against Christians. Countries that persecute Christians the most are uh, in this order: North Korea. Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, and the list goes on. Uh, When Paul was writing to to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said this, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And we don't live in a country that persecutes believers, although About five years ago, there was legislation on the books that they were moving in the direction that would have brought a measure of persecution to churches, to Bible-believing churches. Um, It is very probable that in our day, we will see it at some point. Um, And even within this local assembly, while we are not being persecuted by our government at, at the state level or the federal level, uh, there are different kinds of persecution or different kinds of suffering that can be brought to bear against a child of God, even within one's own marriage or even within one's own family. OK, whether it be a measure of ostracism or hatred, you know, so there are different kinds of persecution. There are millions of Christians around the world in our day that share our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't share our freedom. We are a very free people in the United States of America. So, So many of Jesus' words up to this point have been so positive. He's been talking about love and over and over again, love and loving one another. And this is how I'm showing my love to you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. And there's this so many positive words that Jesus has been using. But here in our text this morning, Jesus is preparing and bracing his disciples for what lies before them. What lay ahead. And we need to understand who Jesus is talking about when he refers to the world. He uses it several times in the verses that I read. So the term world uh, can be used, is used in the Bible to mean several different things. Um, in First John, chapter one, and verse 10, it says the world was made by him. And so he's speaking there about the created world, the heavens and the earth. In John, chapter three, the Bible tells us that God so loved the world, meaning that uh, the world there is referring to humanity in general, men and women, boys and girls, young and old. It doesn't matter. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So the world can be used to, in the Bible as the word is found, it's used to refer to the created world, um, but it's also used to refer to people in general. The word world in the Bible also is used to refer to a society of people who are uh, in rebellion against God, Uh, a movement of people, the world in general, a society of people who are apart from God and who are opposed to God they don't want him telling them what to do um, it hasn't been that long since th- it was in the news regularly about where there, there was a movement to remove the Ten Commandments from courthouses well why is that they were it was a um, act of rebellion against God if there is a God was their thinking and these are his commandments, We are not going to submit to him or his commandments. We have our own moral code, Uh, even though so much of our um, structure in the United States of America is based upon God and his word. You know, um, the sanctity of human life is that comes from God. It doesn't come from man. And so from a biblical perspective, the world, as we're reading it in our text, it involves all the people and all of the plans and all of the organizations and all of the activities and all the philosophies and all of the values that so-called of the world that belong to society that are without God. And there are, they will talk about their values, their speech that is politically correct or politically incorrect. In our world today, it's acceptable to kill a baby within the womb. That's acceptable, according to our world. And they would even say it is the right of the mother. And for you to tell her she can't kill the baby in her womb makes you immoral. That's the philosophy of the world. God says the opposite. To take the life of the child makes you immoral. See? And so the world's philosophies and the world's standards and the world's thinking, the world is in opposition to God. And some of these things may be cultural and some of these things can be very corrupt, but all of these things have their origin in the heart and mind of sinful man. And promote what sinful man wants to do and wants to enjoy and wants to accomplish Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you had a longing or desire to do something, but God and his word was standing in the way? And you knew his word and you knew by his Holy Spirit, you knew that what you wanted or were inclined to do was against what God said. Have you ever been there? Yes or no? Yes. So just because we are Christians or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't mean that we can't understand the world in this sense because our own flesh would lead us to go against the Holy Spirit and our own flesh would lead us to go against God's Word. Well, the world is just, they're just like us. They just don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They don't have the Word of God written upon their hearts and they're living life, they're ordering life without God. And that is the world that he's talking about here. Now, the Bible tells us as Christians we're to be careful not to love the world, he says in 1 John 2. Love not the world. Don't fall in love with the world system. In Romans chapter 12, he tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world. This is a battle that you and I face, and in both those passages, the the penman of those passages is writing to believers and he's telling believers i know it you, there you have an impulse in you there's something in you that wants to love the world i know that there's something in you that wants to con- be conformed to the world our children we see this in our children there's there's a battle and and we as parents need wisdom and we need to be gracious and loving but we all and compassionate, but we also need to be strong and firm and resolved that we're going to lead our children not to be conformed to the world. And that's not just a list of standards, by the way. That's you and me living it out before them. Taking them back to the word of God. And there are going to be times where they're going to lack wisdom, and they're not going to connect the dots. They're going to say, "But I don't see why I can't. Why can't I wear, look, go, stay out, date?" Okay, that's just. And you know what? We under we ought to understand our children because we have flesh ourselves, and, and no matter how old we are, we seem to be having those conversations with ourselves. Am I am I really being too picky here? Maybe I'm being too picky. You know, I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to be a Pharisee. You know, we we have to sift through these things. We have to come to biblical conclusions. So we're, we're warned, don't love the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Now, please remember, as we look at this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples about relationships. Abide in me. Love one another. And now he says, this is the world, and this is how they're going to receive you or not going to receive you. I want to answer the question this morning. Why does the world hate God's people so much? I mean, what did we ever do to them? What did Jesus do to them? I mean, he loved us when we were in the world, when we were dead in our sins, when we hated him, when we were a part of the world system. God loved us. Why? Why does the world hate God's people so much? Number one we are identified by the world with Jesus Christ. The world identifies us with Jesus. Look at the passage in verse number 18. John 15, verse 18, it says this, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Look at it again. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. So part of the, one of the reasons why the world hates God's people so much is that we are identified with Jesus Christ. If they hated Jesus, then they're going to hate those who are identified with Jesus. Look down to verse 20 in John 15. In verse 20, he says this, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, if they're receiving me, Jesus is saying, they will Keep yours, your sayings also. And Jesus repeats what he had said earlier back in John chapter 13. I'll look back there. I'll read it to you. John 13 and verse 16. Jesus said this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And the point is fairly simple from John 13 and verse 16 here and as well as here in John 15, and verse number 20. The point is fairly simple. Jesus is the master, and we are his servants. Jesus is greater than we are, and all praise and all glory belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the world will not give him praise and glory. They will not give him honor. People look at creation. They look at creation. The heavens and the earth, in these human bodies, which are miracles, and they look at creation and they come up with other theories to explain creation, like evolution. And they put, they'd rather put their faith in evolution because that would mean that there is nobody, there's no creator that they have to give account to and answer to. I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently and we were doing a Bible study uh, about salvation. And uh, he has been brought up in evolution, taught it from a child. And uh, and I said to him, I said, look at this body. I mean, this is just amazing. This is amazing. He said, I don't know about that. You're you're 40. I said, no, 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 not this, not this body, but the creation of the human body. Okay, don't focus on that. You know, maybe your frailties in your human body. But the point is, it is it's a it's a miracle. It's unbelievable. What God has created. But the world looks for every opportunity to find any, any, any theory to do away with the idea of God. The world hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and so the world hates the followers of Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't escape persecution, did he? He didn't escape persecution, and he was perfect. And we aren't going to escape persecution either. In Matthew 26 and verse 31, Jesus is identified as the shepherd and we are as identified as the sheep. And when the wolves are attacking the shepherd or the sheep, the shepherd is involved. And when they're attacking the shepherd, the sheep are involved. The sheep are going to be affected. And the idea of being hated and persecuted isn't a fond thought, but a reminded uh, that when the disciples of Christ are persecuted, Christ is with us in, even in that persecution. You remember Saul of Tarsus when he was on the road to Damascus? And Saul was on the way to persecute churches. That's where he was headed. And he saw a bright light from heaven, and he heard the voice of God, and Saul was saved. But Jesus asked Saul a question. What did Christ say to Saul on The road to Damascus in Acts nine, verse four, the Bible records this. God said this, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, was Saul persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ? Was he persecuting God? Did he think he was persecuting God? No, he didn't think he was persecuting God. He thought he was very convinced he was doing the right thing by God. But God said, You're persecuting, in in, in this sense, in essence, you're persecuting these churches. And in essence, you're persecuting me. When you persecute them, you're hurting me. You're attacking me. You know, anything the enemy can do to us has already been done to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is with us as we suffer. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So maybe you're in a situation where you're facing persecution. Know this, you are not alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is feeling everything that you feel. He is going through everything that you're going through with you. He is with you. And what they are doing to you, the hatred, the things that are being said, maybe the things that are being done, Maybe the abandonment or the rejection they're doing to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. I notice. secondly, why does the world hate God's people so much? Not only, firstly, because we are identified with Jesus Christ, but secondly, because we do not belong to the world. Why does the world hate God's people so much? Because we don't belong to the world. Look at verse number 19 in the passage. He says, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Why does the world hate God's people so much? Jesus tells us, because you're not of this world. Now, one of the scary things about living in a free society like the United States of America is, the church seems to be bent on becoming more worldly. we'll We'll even talk about it in the sense of, well, we want to reach people. And so to reach people, the way to do that is to become more like them, to reach them. That is not what Jesus Christ teaches anywhere. Now, standards don't equal righteousness. But know who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. You've been saved. He's bought you with his precious blood. He has called you out. He is in the process of sanctifying you and making you different and separate from the world, distinctly different from the world, because you're not of the world anymore. You're of Christ. But be who you are, where you are. The goal is not to get everybody here uh, shoved into the same box. You know, we all dress alike. We could all do that. We'd look different then. That's not the goal. No, you're going to work in different workplaces. You have. We all have different backgrounds and different upbringings. The Holy Spirit of God indwells every single one of us who are saved. He's working in us by His Word. That we might not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, right, by the renewing of our minds. So that we'll be who God wants us to be in this world, even though we're not of this world. You know, when we trusted Christ for his salvation, we were given a new spiritual position. What position is that? We are now in Christ. And we are not, according to verse number 19, we are not of this world. Now, obviously, we're in this world physically. You don't think you are. See Pastor Scott after the service. You're not sure if you're in this world or not physically, but you are. We're here. We're in this world physically, but we're not of this world spiritually. And that's what Jesus is saying. In Hebrews chapter three, he says this, that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. And what does that mean? Well, we're no longer consumed with the treasures of this earth. You say, well, I kind of am, Seth. I I struggle with being consumed. Okay, well, you're human. You you have flesh. We're kind of prone to that. But we're not consumed with the treasures of this earth or even the pleasures of sin in this world. And it doesn't mean that we're uh, out of touch with reality. It doesn't mean that we never face temptations. If you're alive, you're going to face temptations. Intense temptations. Seasons of intense temptations. It is going to happen. It doesn't mean that we're never going to stumble along the way or we're never going to fall along the way. It means that we look at things of the earth from heaven's point of view. And the world system functions on the basis of conformity. As long as a person follows the fads and fashions and accepts the values of the world, he will get along with the world. But we don't belong to this world. And that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. The disciples of Christ refused to, to conform to the world. The child of God is a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says it this way, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Those who have been saved by God no longer want to live the old life. There are times in our walk with the Lord where we are tempted by our own, drawn away of our own lust and enticed. And maybe you found yourself in that situation where you are fixated on something. And it is an intense temptation. And the spirit of God within you is leading you to rebel against worldliness and your flesh and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's this intense battle, the flesh and the spirit doing war with one another. This is something that every child of God faces. And again, I used to think when I was a teenager, you know, it was just at that point in life. But you know what? I looked around the church and everybody else seemed to have it all figured out. You know, once you get to be in your early 20s, it's just clear sailing. These people, these old people, don't ever, they're never tempted. You know, that's not true. It doesn't stop. In fact, sometimes it gets more intense than anything I ever experienced as a teenager. It means that we no longer want to live that life. I know what the word of God says. I'm learning to trust God and that his ways are best. And so when I'm tempted by my own flesh, and there's a part of me that wants so badly to run after it, and that's the old man, yet in my right mind, in the spirit of Christ who lives within me, I want to obey God. I want to live my life for Him. I don't want to go back. I don't want to sow to the flesh. You see, and this is the difference. First Peter talks about this in First Peter chapter four and verse one. Peter says this: For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. He says, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. There was a time in our lives where we did the will like the unsaved world does today. When we walk in lasciviousness, that's excessive wickedness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquettings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. They, they look at you and say, what's wrong with these people? They're crazy. Why aren't they living their lives the way we live our lives? That's the world. We don't belong to the world anymore, Jesus is telling his disciples. And these men, remember, they're brokenhearted. They're worn out. They're discouraged. Life isn't panning out the way they thought it was going to pan out. This isn't the way it was supposed to go. Christ, you're supposed to set up your kingdom, and now you're leaving us? And they're not the most united bunch. They haven't been loving one another the way Christ has loved them. Now Christ is saying it's going to get worse, actually, before it gets better. The world is going to hate you the very same way they hate me. And this is all happening after the Lord's Supper has taken place, the Passover feast. They're on their way out of Jerusalem. They haven't crossed over the Brook Kidron yet. On the other side of Brook Kidron, and the disciples don't know this, they're going to go up into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to be betrayed with a kiss. They're going to fall asleep and leave him there alone in agony. This is all happening. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples, who he loves very much. He's saying, you need to know, you need to brace yourself for what's happened, what's ahead for you. And that is the world's going to hate you. You know, Christ tells us that we're the salt of the earth and that we're the light of the world. But a dark world doesn't want light and a decaying world doesn't want salt And the point is this, a child of God is not just out of step with the world, he is out of place. And the songwriter wrote it, we're pilgrims just passing through. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Now, some of us in this room, we found a way to get quite comfortable we kind of nestled down in this world, and I'm not saying we should go through this world. You know, I'm not saying Pastor's not saying if you if you're caught smiling, he's going to be like you must like it here. No, no, I hope you smile. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, God has made all things for us to richly enjoy. Okay, so enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. But there ought to be a sense of, I don't really fit here. I don't really fit. I don't fit in. A good illustration for this might be uh, if you were, if you have your child enrolled at a public school. And the majority of children there in that particular public school are unsaved. And that would vary on the public school and the region of the country. But if you were to put your child there who is a saved young person in that public school where most of the young people there are unsaved, let's say in that, for sake of illustration, and are very rebellious. And every school has its own culture, right? Every school has its own culture. So let's just say, for sake of illustration, this particular public school has a very wicked culture. And uh, there's a lot of rebellion. A lot of lying and cheating, stealing, and uh, there's a wickedness there. One of the modern terms of our day is bullying, it, being unkind, right, being mean to one another, and that's the spirit. But you put your child there, and you're, you're teaching your child to be kind and loving and gracious, and forgiving, and giving to others, and 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 yet they're in a place where they really can't trust their classmates. And they're picked on, and they're hated, and they're despised, and they're rejected. Why? Because they don't get to go to that dance. Um, And not just because mom and dad say they can't, but because they don't want to themselves, because they want to follow the Lord, and they're concerned that by going there, that might compromise some things, and that Christ wouldn't want to be a part of that, therefore doesn't want them to be a part of it. And, And if they're in a car riding along with a classmate, you know, the music is not... They can't participate, and so they become. They begin to be hated for who they are, a Christian, a Christ follower, someone who loves God, someone who wants to keep themselves pure, and, and, and morally they're trying to keep themselves pure and not give themselves over as maybe the vast majority of the school is just going hog wild into immorality, and, and we can see it in this illustration that that young person would begin, they would be identified, oh yeah, they're weird, different. Yeah, they don't don't listen to that. They wouldn't know. You know, they make jokes around them and, well, they wouldn't know that the joke is they don't get to watch that. They wouldn't watch that show. The danger for us as Christians in this world is there's a continual pull in all of us, not just in a public school, but in this world, no matter our age. There's a continual pull to be like the world, to think like the world, to act like the world, to be entertained like the world. And we almost, there's this this there's this pull uh, within us even, pulling us more toward the world. We want to have a, a, a brand of Christianity that the world accepts. And the question I have for you and me this morning is, should that be our concern? That the world would look at us and say, Oh wow, he's cool. That's a cool family. They're Christians, but they watch what we watch too. They're Christians and, and they use language like we use it too. They're Christians, but but they're, they're not they're not judgmental. They don't they're not they don't think better. I'm not saying we should be judgmental. I think you know that. We are to be righteous. We are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to love him. And obey him and his commands. So why does the world hate us? Well, they hate us because we are identified with Jesus Christ. They hate us because we don't belong to them. And thirdly, they hate us because the world is spiritually ignorant and blind. Look at verse 21. He says this, Jesus says, But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Why Does the world hate God's people because they don't know God himself? Now, many people in the world will say, yeah, I believe there's a God. But they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. They they haven't experienced his love. They haven't received his love. They haven't recognized his love. If we were able to ask the religious leaders in Jerusalem... If they knew God, they would have declared vehemently that they did. In fact, we studied a couple of passages where they were. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know him. And they're debating Jesus and they're saying, he's our God. You can't speak of the father that way. He's our God. And Jesus is saying, he's my father and you don't know him. You don't know him. You think you know him. You have no idea who he is. And they had been saying that they had known God for centuries. And Jesus said that they would persecute and hate his followers because the world didn't know the Father. And therefore, they couldn't possibly know him. Look down to chapter sixteen in our passage. Look down to verse 3. Jesus says this, And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. You know, the Jewish religious leaders knew a lot about God. They knew a lot of scripture They knew a lot of the law, but they didn't personally know God. Jesus had mentioned this many times before. Back in John chapter 8, he talked about this. And the religious leadership of the Jews were blind to who Jesus was, even though Jesus had taught them the truth. And he had demonstrated, Jesus had demonstrated his deity through countless miracles. And Jesus had lived an impeccable life before these Jewish religious leaders. John 1 verse 10 says he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came into his own and his own received him not. You know, the religious world today claims they know God, too. They don't want to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as the son of God and the only savior of the world. And why? Because Satan has blinded their minds. Second Corinthians chapter four, it says this. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Sin, according to Ephesians, has blinded their hearts. And by the way, this is who we used to be. So I'm not standing here saying the world, them, like I was never a part of it. Or that even today, there's a part of me in my flesh that is more than willing to chase after it completely. And the only thing that keeps me from doing that is my faith. In God and his word and the spirit of God who lives within me. That's the only thing stopping. The Holy Spirit within me. God himself holding me and keeping me and not giving up on me. Not giving up on you. Sin, the Bible says, has blinded their hearts. Ephesians 4 says this, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, excessive wickedness, debauchery, to work all uncleanness with greediness. So the world hates us because we are identified with Jesus Christ. We do not belong to the world. The world is spiritually ignorant and blind. And lastly, because the world will not be honest about its own sin. Why does why does the world hate God's people so much? Because they will not be honest about their own sin. Look at verse 22, what Jesus says. Now read down through verse 24. He says this: If I had not come and spoken unto them, speaking of the world, they had not had sin. If there had been no law, there had been no truth, there had been no light. They never would have known that they were sinful. He goes on in verse 22, but now they have no cloak for their sin. They have no excuse, Jesus says, for their sin. Why? Because he came and spoke the truth to them. Verse 23, he that hateth me, hateth my father also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works, the miracles, which none other man did, they had not had sin. They wouldn't have known they were sinners, but now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Repeatedly, Jesus emphasized his words and his works throughout the gospel of John. In chapter 5, in chapter 10, in chapter 14, he emphasizes his works, his miracles. Why? So that people will know that he's God. And his words, because people, he wants people to know that there's a truth. And it's not found in their own righteousness. It's not found in their own religion. It's not found in their own opinions. In fact, uh, in chapter three of John, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you are a, a man come from God. We know that you're come from God because of what you do. Oh, they knew. They knew that he was come from God. And Jesus says here that they have no cloak. They have no excuse for continuing in their sin. They're not sinning because they're ignorant. They had seen Jesus' works. They had seen Jesus' miracles. They had heard his words, but they just wouldn't admit the truth that they were sinners, that they needed a Savior, and that God was their only Savior. They wouldn't admit that. All the evidence had been presented, but they were not honest enough to receive it or act upon it. The statement, I think, that Jesus makes here in John 15 is similar to the statement that he made back in John chapter 9. After he had healed the blind man from birth. Oh, I want to look at it just for a moment. John 9. It's in verse 39. John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus heals this blind man who'd been blind from his birth. And in verse 39 of John chapter 9, Jesus said this for judgment am I, I am come into this world that they which see not might see. So the blind can see, Jesus says. That's why I'm coming to this world. And that they which see or think they see, is what Jesus is saying, might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? I mean, this man needed something. He was blind from birth. So he needed to be given sight, but... Are you saying we're blind too? I mean, we're not blind. And not only are we not blind physically, but we're not blind spiritually. We know they're so arrogant. And Jesus, in verse 41, said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. If you thought you needed me, Jesus is saying, you would be forgiven. You would be saved. But now ye say, we see. And Jesus says, therefore, because you say you see, because you say you have no need of the truth. He says, your sin remaineth. Those are terrible words. Your sin remaineth. You're still dead in your sins and trespasses against God. You're still bound for hell for all of eternity. Why? Because you think that you can see how terrible, how terrible. Back in our text in chapter 15, you know, those rich, wealthy, religious men admitted that Jesus healed the blind man, but they they would not follow the evidence to its logical conclusion. They wouldn't put their trust in him. They talked to a man who could who could make a man who was blind from his birth see. And yet they were not humble enough to receive his salvation for themselves. That's that's who the world is. And Jesus told them that they were the ones who were blind, and they admitted that they had seen a miracle, but they were, and Jesus is saying here, they're not sinning in ignorance. They're willfully choosing not to believe in spite of the floodlight of evidence around them. Why? Because that light revealed their own sin, and they didn't want to face their own sin honestly. Peter said this in 2 Peter 3 and verse 5, he said this, for this they willingly are ignorant of That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Peter says they're willingly ignorant, even though they look at creation. Look at verse 25 of our text, John 15. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. And he quotes here from the Psalms. They hated me without a cause. Jesus quotes from Psalm 35 I think Psalm 69 as well says the same thing. The world hated Jesus, and he tells his disciples this, they've hated me without any cause, without any reason. Proverbs 29 and verse 27, the latter part says this, he that is upright in the way is abomination to the wicked. The person who lives a righteous life makes the ungodly and the wicked nauseous and sick to their stomach. They can't take it. They hate it. And they hate those who are righteous. So Trinity Baptist Church, we live in this world, don't we? But we're not of this world. When you leave here later today after our potatoes and our one o'clock service, when you leave here later today, you go back into the workplace tomorrow, work there all week, you, you face the opposition that you're facing. Remember this. Remember this. I live in this world. That's where I live but I'm not of this world. I belong to Christ. I'm in Christ. And as we go out to live in this world every day this week, we ought to be preaching with our lives and our lips against sin. Use wisdom and discretion. Speak the truth in love. Live your life following the Lord Jesus Christ and it will be a sermon. And you'll be hated for it, for doing the right thing and being honest when you could lie and And your other employees might go along with it, because that would be common. It would make sense to do, to lie in that situation. Don't do it. Live your lives warning of God's judgment of hell to come. Preach the salvation of God. Live out the gospel. What is the gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In other words, die to self. Don't do what you feel like doing. Live like all of your sins have been taken away and buried in the depths of the deepest sea. Live like you've been saved, like I've been saved, to live our lives to serve the Lord. That's the gospel. Tell of God's mercy and love and grace. And how can we expect the world to respond to the righteousness of God in us? Well, there are one of two ways they'll respond. Either they'll see Christ in us and believe upon him and be saved themselves. Or two, they'll hate you. They'll despise you. They'll 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 accuse you of being uh, uppity. They'll, they'll accuse you of being self righteous and judgmental, and they'll accuse you of those things. And even though you're not judging anybody, you're just living, following the Lord. You see, the light exposes darkness. Salt preserves and can preserve a society, but if a society doesn't want to be preserved, then salt is the problem. You see. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. And then he says this, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother Abel. And then John asks, "Wherefore, and wherefore slew he him? Why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because his... Offering was wicked and Abel's was righteous. Why did Cain kill his brother? He says here, because Cain was of the wicked one. He was of the wicked one. In Philippians chapter two and verse 14, he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. In Colossians chapter 1, he tells us that we have been delivered from the power of darkness. And I'll close with this. The ruler of the kingdom of darkness isn't happy at all about you and me being delivered from his kingdom. You know that? He's not happy at all about you being delivered from his kingdom. He hates God. And I'm talking about Satan. He hates God and he hates the Lord Jesus Christ and he hates the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit, he hates the bride of Christ, the local church. He hates the disciples of Christ, the followers of Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And then Peter adds this, whom? Resist steadfast in the faith. And that's what you're doing. And it's not, our lives are not impeccable. Not a one of us sits here without sin, without falling along the way, but he says, Whom? Resist steadfast in the faith. How do we resist the devil? Well, it's something you have to continually do, and we do it by taking God at his word and believing God's words to be true and his promises to be right, even though the world around us is saying, Come on, what are you doing? Why do you live that way? What about your happiness? What about you? Live for yourself. Your life is so short. Do what makes you feel good. Why would you discipline yourself? Why would you? Why would you? Why would you follow God and His Word? It's so outdated. He says, whom resists steadfast in the faith? Why, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world." I'm going to stop there, but in verses 26 and 27, Christ begins to tell them something he's going to expound upon in the next chapter. He's going to tell them, I'm sending a comforter, my comforter to you. And the Holy Spirit's going to be a witness. And he's going to enable you to be a witness to the world in which you live. And this is very comforting and it's wonderful. It's reassuring that as we go out into the battlefield, a world that hates God A world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ and all the followers of Christ, we don't go alone. We don't go alone. And though we'll disband here and this congregation will disassemble and we'll all go our separate ways, we'll face different temptations throughout this week, every single one of us. And though there might be mockings or accusations, ridicule that might come our way, we are not alone. And that actually Christ lives within us by his Holy Spirit. And the question then is only this. Will I yield to the Lord Jesus Christ and stand for righteousness in a wicked world? Or will I give in to myself? I want you to take your hymnals and I want you to turn with me to hymn number 487. 487. I'd like to end by singing... It's a short hymn. I'd like to sing all four, 487. If you have your hymnals there, would you stand with me to your feet? I want to look at this hymn for just a moment before we sing it. Sometimes we sing these hymns and we have no idea what they're saying. In verse 2, he says this. He says, I will go with him, with the Lord Jesus Christ through the garden. What garden do you suppose he's talking about? The Garden of Gethsemane. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? His disciples fell asleep and Jesus was alone. And there are times that you and I feel alone. And the hymn writer, and what I'm asking you to sing is this I'll go with him through the garden. If I feel all alone, I'm going to keep going with him. In verse 3, he says this I'll go through him, I'll go with him through the judgment. What judgment is he talking about? Well, what happened after Jesus was betrayed? They took him into judgment. And they were breaking their own laws to do it. And again, he was all alone. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was he was accused over and over and over and over again. And the very people he came to save are rejecting him and accusing him. They're denying him. And what we're going to be singing is, Lord, even if I'm all alone, even if the people that I love and care for the most are rejecting the truth, I'm going to go with you through the judgment. So let's sing all four here this morning. <coughs>